This is Geek Gab Game Day. I'm your host, John. Joining me today, as usual, is the inimitable Daddy Warpig. Hello, Daddy Warpig. I've probably muted him. Uh, today, I've got... Uh, we've invited two of the most passionate writers about Dungeons and & Dragons and RPGs in general that I've ever met, anyway. Our first guest is the RPG Pundit, also known as Kazimir Urbanski. Uh, he's been blogging and punditing for years, uh, as well as produced his own uh, RPGs and modules. Uh, he, he blogs over on WordPress, and he's got a couple of new YouTube shows coming out, because he saw how awesome we were doing and decided he should do that, too. So welcome to the show, Pundit. Uh, thank you. Uh, first, though, I'll mention it's on Blogspot, not WordPress. Oh, I did it wrong. That's okay. We'll make I'm sure links are boss and internet shitlords. <laughs> what was that? The final boss in Internet Shitlords. Where did you get that name? Well, when I started the D&D Gate hashtag, uh, I got a whole bunch of pushback because of that. And there was this one, I assume SJW, maybe not, I don't know, just somebody. Somebody said, did a tweet where they said, oh, great. I, I knew it had to be the final boss in Internet shitlords who did this. And they said it as though they thought that would offend me, right? My God, I took that as a title right away, right? Like, what an honor. <laughs> right, yeah, that, that's, that's strong language. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, right, sorry. <laughs> what? No, no, we're good, we're good. Uh, and welcome to the show. And, and also joining us today is Jeffro Johnson, author of Appendix and the Literary History of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, glad to have you back on the show, Jeffro. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. Really glad to be here. There is so much stuff happening these days in the, shall I use the phrase, D&D community, um, <laughs> that uh, Daddy Warpig and I have been talking about the past couple of episodes on the show, so we had to have you guys come online and, uh, and, and talk about it. Um, and this goes into what you mentioned earlier, the D&D gate uh, thing, which... If I may offer my own personal opinion for the second time on this show, I think the, I think the hashtags, hashtag itself is a little corny, but the the idea behind it and, and what's happening to D&D right now, I think is real. It, it's true. So, so, Pundit, what can you tell me about that? Well, um, in short, the D&D gate hashtag was, was kind of... Um, a response to the to the comics gate hashtag, which is what what came out of um, a very similar phenomenon that's that's a little bit more advanced right now in the in the comics scene than it is in the RPG scene. But all the same signs are here in the in the D and D scene, which is that uh, you know, and if if I, I assume you guys have probably even talked about this sort of thing on the show that uh, comics, especially Marvel, but also DC, have had this kind of infiltration of um, ideological radicals that have taken control of the major companies and are uh, exerting their influence in such a way as to intentionally basically attack the mainstream fans that they very clearly despise, right? And, uh, and to create this notion that there's some kind of a greater um, community, they call it, they use the word community as this kind of weapon to justify uh, the need to exclude the people that they consider hateful or intolerant of diversity or what have you from that community, right? To, to, to declare suddenly now we're in charge and you're the evil ones who want to keep people out. So we're going to throw you out of this 
community we've just invented and marginalize you. And uh, this became very visible in the D&D scene over the last few months when you've seen uh, a number of big, big figures in the RPG industry, including a number of people directly in the hierarchy of Wizards of the Coast, the makers of D&D, um, making tweets that are directly attacks on gamers. You had things like, um, well, Mike Merles, when, when Wizards hired a YouTube uh, celebrity, a, a D&D YouTube uh, live, live game celebrity as uh, one of their writers, some gamers said, well, hang on, is she really qualified? And Merles accused um, mainstream gamers of uh, questioning his, his hire because she was a woman, which was not what almost anyone was saying. And uh, then he fired these intolerant gamers from the hobby, right? Oh, I remember uh, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you guys have been playing for 30, 40 years and, and, and are worried about the direction of the development of your favorite game. You know, you're fired. We don't want you anymore. You know, I, I'm going to have to agree with Jessica Price on this one that uh, this guy is a fake geek boy. <laughs> now you mentioned you mentioned something interesting. I mean, in in, in terms of D and D itself, um, Jeffrey and I before the show we were talking about the culture in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it very, I mean, Seattle these days is is its own special place. And Wizards of the Coast, uh, Wizards of the Coast purchased TSR ages ago. I mean, it, it yeah. dragons ages ago. Like we, we it, it had already happened. So it's strange that it that they waited until 2018. But the the Dungeons and Dragons had been converged basically from the beginning. Well, yeah, yes and no. But you got to remember too that there's been a huge kind of jump. Like uh, you know, I lived in the Pacific Northwest around the time that Wizards of the Coast, not in, I didn't live in Seattle, I lived in Vancouver, but uh, uh, it's a very similar sort of environment. Um, it's, the, it's the Canadian Seattle. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was right around the time that Wizards was uh, purchasing TSR, right? And so for one thing, the scene was different at that time, right? Like there have always been, you know, we call British Columbia in Canada, the land of fruits and nuts. Or at least we used to. I think. I think now in Canada you can go to prison for that. But you know they used to call it that, <laughs> and uh, and 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 so it was always crazies, and there was always you know radicals and things like that. But there was also this kind of um, big libertarian culture. Remember that that in the early two thousands, Silicon Valley uh, was, if anything, it was full of nerd boy economic libertarians you know the ayn rand objectivists and all that sort of thing right so there was the the people that were in the nerd scene at that time were not these these kinds of people um and that when when wishes the coast bought tsr they initially brought with them a number of people that were from late stage tsr that weren't you know part of the native seattle scene and that were people that were in dnd for a long time and plus up until the last few years, you know, up until maybe 2010, 2011, while there were always people in gaming that were on the right or on the left, 
for the most part, they didn't make gaming, you know, the culture war wasn't happening. There was a, there was a bigger sort of sense of a culture war between left and right, but there wasn't the pop culture war where you had people demanding that every, every aspect of entertainment be politicized. And, and so you had a bunch of gamers that were, you know, you, you, you didn't even know what your game designer's political ideology was because it really wasn't, with a few exceptions, it really wasn't a, a very big deal. And it certainly wasn't for D&D, right? But this, this all kind of started to change um, in the last, you know, in the last eight years, maybe, where now you have people coming in who aren't gamers with political views. They're political ideologues who maybe happen to game, uh, maybe not. You know, some of them probably don't game, right? I'm, I'm not very sure if Anna Krieger actually games, for example, you know? And so, uh, yeah, uh, go on. I, I want to talk about this for just a sec, um, because this is actually really important for people to understand. The way SJWs, there doesn't have to be very many SJWs for them to gain power over an industry. Um, yeah. You can have a very small minority. You can have a bunch of people that aren't even in power, aren't even in positions of power, and the rest of the industry will fall in line with them. So they use social ostracization and pressure, and they guilt people about politics that they kind of already agree with anyway. If you're very left-wing, you've got very strong feelings about racism, very strong feelings about, say, affirmative action and wanting to give assistance to minorities. Now, without arguing that politics, I'm not, I'm not trying to point that out and say that's bad and people who believe that's bad. And SJW will come in and they will say, well, we believe in that same thing too. And because of that, we demand that you give power to us. We demand that you give money to us. We demand that you give a job to us. And then they will guilt trip people so that they feel guilty and go along with what the SGW is demanding. Or they apply social pressure so that if you don't do what the SJW is demanding, you get inundated. You get smeared. You get your reputation destroyed in public. You can be the most staunch, ideologically perfect left-winger who, because you deviate from their beliefs just a little bit, they will destroy your lives. They will turn you into, in public perception, a Nazi, a racist, a homophobe. They will accuse you of everything under the sun. So it doesn't take a lot of SJWs to have a heavy influence in artistic fields because for good or bad reasons, most artistic fields tend to lean left-wing anyway. And at least that's what we've observed in America historically over the past you know, 60 years. Uh, and so they can come in and they're very, very radical. They're very, very vicious. They network constantly with each other. They uh, tend to get together in these little groups that are private and plan out who they're going to attack next. And that's not a conspiracy theory because we actually have instances of those groups where their communications have been leaked to other people. We have pictures of Facebook groups where they were plotting against uh, diversity and comics, the uh, YouTube comics critics. We have uh, uh, Games Journal Pro where a bunch of games journalists who are left-wing were plotting to support their narrative and so forth. They just do this so that they can get prominence and power and they become 
gatekeepers, and there doesn't take very many of them. Now, the good thing about that is, and I'll, I'm going to finish this last point and then shut up so everybody else can get talking. The good thing about the fact that there's not very many of them is that they don't have the support everybody thinks they have. Their hold on an industry um, for a long time is actually pretty tenuous, so long as people are willing to stand up and fight against them. If it's just one guy, you're going to get hammered and smeared, like Ethan Van Skyver, uh, who was a 25-year veteran of comics, uh, had his career almost destroyed where he was still working at DC Comics. But uh, the atmosphere there was so poisonous because SJWs conducted a three-year campaign of calling him a Nazi. But if it were just one guy, it's very, very difficult. But if it's everybody, they everybody who isn't an SJW refuses to... Uh, listen to them, if they stand together, then the SUWs would be in, almost immediately defeated and they could go on with it. Now, I'm not, I'm not recommending people blow up their lives over this, but it is something to consider that they are very, very good at creating the impression of support and want to make you believe they have way more support than they do. And, and if I could just jump in on this, uh, uh, you know, the, the move to Seattle did uh, make a, some things in the field worse, but this stuff really isn't new at all. If you read the letter columns to, say, Dragon Magazine from the early 80s, and even if you look at uh, the uh, role-playing games from the early 80s, the, the extent to which the field, the gaming field, bent over backwards to supplicate to radical feminists is really kind of disgusting. Like I've got a, I've got an old uh, copy of the introduction to Starfleet Battles, which is the game uh, that I would say has the least number of female players. Uh, probably the only one that that is probably more male dominated is Advanced Squad Leader. Um, but this this game it opens up with, "Welcome, ladies." That's how it opens. And, and it's just, it's really, it's embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. There is something about nerds that when they face this kind of social pressure from entryists that are coming into their scene to bully them around, that they really want to capitulate in order to avoid conflict. And so what they do is they end up handing over uh, their domains to these people very quickly. And you, you, you see it not just in tabletop games from the 80s, uh, you see it in, in video games journalism today, um, and you also see it in the tech field. Yeah, which, as we just noted, uh, I don't, I'm not sure who said it, but it used to be very libertarian, it used to be very meritocratic, but the past five years, tech has gone full SAW. So, um, yeah, I, I work in I work in high tech in the Seattle area, and I can confirm that. I don't want to get into details, but it's it's pretty bad. Um, I I think another thing that sort of drives me crazy, and I think a lot of other people as well, those of us who've been gaming for a while, the the whole push for uh, for lack of a better term, diversity and inclusivity, that whole that whole SJW infiltration in tabletop gaming is a head-scratcher because, yeah, your average D&D gamer is a nerdy young boy or young man. But it's always been sort of an inclusive uh, hobby, just like video gaming. You know, if, if you come in and 
you learn the rules and you want to play, you can play. There's never been any sort of exclusion or anything in these hobbies. We used to exclude people who didn't want to play or didn't want to learn the rules or just wanted to uh, chat with their friends or look on their phones while everybody's trying to have a good time. But not in the way that the social justice warriors think. And so it's really sort of disorienting to see all these uh, charges, you know, not at my table, that that sort of, that hashtag, that crab, you know, you have to try to be inclusive. I've seen things, especially in this area, people have started up sort of LGBT friendly game groups or, or trans friendly game groups. And I sort of scratching my head and going, that sounds like a normal game group. It's It, it would be rare to have a game group exclude someone just because. Yeah, I think the real yeah. problem in gaming is that there's a million billion Nazis and they all are in gaming. And so everybody in gaming is a Nazi. So we really have to do something to get them all out. It's it's a crisis. It's a crisis of Nazis in gaming, I tell you. Terrible. Well, you know, I, I, I was tweeting about this uh, just today that, uh, you know, the SJWs are saying, no, no, hang on. Uh, we're not trying to kick out all, you know, all gamers or all white male gamers or all male gamers or something like that. We just want to get rid of the toxic ones, the gatekeepers, right? But I mean, just just this week, um, Polygon did an article about how uh, white male gamers are all toxic, right? And Vice did an article about how all males are toxic, right? So I, if you're defining the toxic ones as the ones we're kicking out, you know, they're talking about um, basically kicking out everybody um, and I, I'd go one further is that really from what I've seen, because like, for example, when D&D gate happened on Twitter, I was being um, attacked on Twitter, so to say, right? I mean, bombarded with tweets um, from all these different SJWs, almost all of whom were from what I could see white males. Um, and the only people at the very beginning who were fighting back, the people that jumped to my side are some of my followers who happened at that time um, to be uh, um, a, a woman, two trans women, and a disabled gay Jew, right? So it was a Latino, um, three women, two of whom were trans women, and a disabled gay Jew fighting for D&D Gate against this huge mob of white men, right? Who are, you know, white male cucks, but white males nonetheless, right? <laughs> Can somebody that's, that's, the, that's the real ridiculous part of it, is that, that they talk about diversity, they talk about inclusion, and apart from maybe um, women, because there are a lot of women SJWs in the gaming scene, when you look at the actual images, and they're all white women too, are almost all of them, um, the, the, the SJW crowd are incredibly white, uh, largely male, and completely middle class, right? So they're like the least diverse group that you could imagine to be leading the assault. But that's nothing new. I mean, that's been happening since, what, Russia in 1917, right? I, I think that really what you guys are afraid of is the future. I, I can imagine a great and glorious future for Dungeons and Dragons where Dungeons and Dragons has become not just a gaming brand, but a lifestyle brand where we have cooking shows on YouTube, where we make um, 
the beholder sandwich, a a a true hero sandwich made, uh, named after the beholder, and where everybody is into the lifestyle of D and D, but nobody plays D and D. That's the glorious future these people want, and I I think you're bad and wrong for standing in its way. Warpig, did you see my latest video on my channel? Because it was exactly about that subject. I actually do a little cooking segment to to say, well, now anybody who joined my uh, my YouTube video to to watch me make uh, Vietnamese iced coffee is now officially part of the D&D community, even if they've never played, and we have to listen to them. I, I have not seen that. I tell you, actually, the only thing I was uh, ashamed of in that um, in that spiel there was that I couldn't come up with a more D&D monster names. I'm really tired today. Uh, finally, after it, I came up with Ankhead, but Beholder was the only one I could come up with. I'm ashamed. I'm sorry. I have let you down. Well, everyone should watch my channel, The RPG Pundit, on YouTube. <laughs> it's a good show. It's a good show. And, uh, yeah, I, I was wondering, uh, do, do I have to smoke in order to enjoy Arrows of Indra? Would that, would that aid my ability to understand your game? Well, not really, because in uh, historical India, there were no tobacco products. So uh, I, I don't think so. You might, well, you could do some hash. That could, that could work. <laughs> I think here's the thing about um, role-playing games that I think the SJWs don't realize. Um, it is completely unlike, for example, say, computer games or um, comics. Comics require... A large capital outlay to do them well. They, they, it's expensive. You have to have a pencer, a, a penciler, an inker, um, a colorist, and a letterer, and a writer. Um, and then you have to put it in a format that people can buy. You have to get it distributed either as a physical copy, which is uh, up until Comixology came up, it was the only way to get it. So it, there's a high bar to getting into the industry. Uh, and that bar's lowering, obviously. Let's just put that aside for a second. Um, and then you have, for example, let's take computer games. Massive amounts of money just to get a computer game studio set up and running, unless you're a one-man shop. And I know a lot of developers who are one-man shops, but if you're gonna make something that competes on the level of, say, a AAA game, lots and lots of money, many, many people. Role-playing games from the beginning they began as a kit-bashed hobby, where Gary Gygax took pieces from naval warfare games and uh, all these other war games going around and made the mechanics of D&D. And that's where the hobby began. And the hobby has always been, has always been people doing their own thing. It, it is almost technically impossible to run a game without house rules because you're going to misunderstand something in a rule book anyway, and bam, that's a house rule. You don't need the industry. For role-playing games to have people playing them, you don't need the industry. All you need is the hobby. Now, I'm not saying that we should therefore laugh off SJWs because without some kind of industry, the hobby will begin to fall apart. You'll have less and less people playing. You'll have, it'll be harder and harder to get a game together. And so 
it actually is important to preserve the industry. My point is not that we shouldn't worry about it. My point is that SJWs can't, in comics, if you take over Marvel, that's the industry. You control the health of the entire industry. As Marvel goes, so goes the comics uh, industry, and so goes comics themselves. But in Dungeons and Dragons, or in role-playing, if you take over, say, Dungeons and Dragons, you've got squat. And thankfully, Hasbro already proved that. They, uh, we had fourth edition come out, which was widely loathed by the fans and was so awful that the perpetual leader of the hobby, Dungeons and Dragons, became second place to Pathfinder, became second place to people running a house-ruled version of Dungeons and Dragons. If Dungeons and Dragons goes down, people have lots of things they can step into a place. We have Adventure Conqueror King. We have, you know, all of the OSR stuff um, or even 3.5 stuff or 3.0 stuff or whatever becomes... Uh, the front-leading game. So SJWs have picked a fight in a hobby that there are no uh, significant nodes and in critical infrastructure. Key nodes and in critical infrastructure uh, is the phrase, military phrase, that diversity in comics uses. But there aren't any in Dungeons & Dragons because they can be replaced overnight. Um, people can play different games. They don't have to suck it up. In Marvel... If you want to read a uh, Spider-Man comic book, you have to suck up whatever SJWisms they put into the book right now. But in right. role playing, if you want to play Dungeons and Dragons, you can do it whatever the hell you want. I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree in a couple of points here, though, um, because first of all, you're 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 generally right, and you're right about you know people can game in their house or whatever, and you already pointed out that that the the one of the the negative effects of this, which would be a declining uh, membership in the actual hobby, right? But, um, you know, we, we don't want to underestimate the cleverness of certain SJW entryists, right? And and there are a couple of points. The um, the Even at the level of the hobby, uh, you still need to have people creating um, creating content and creating content that can reach people. And uh, even though we don't have a centralized system the way comics do, where if you're in control of DC and Marvel, you're basically in control of comics. Um, the, the, the problem is we, we still rely on a distribution network, right? On, online, we rely on a single major distributor of RPGs, which is, which is one bookshelf, which was, by the way, the very first thing the SJWs tried to attack. Kind of fortunately, because at that time, a number of us, including myself, are you led the fight against that. Are are you kidding? They won. You know that all all one bookshelf, all drive through RPG stuff is is converged, right? I I know that it's a single uh, it's a single company. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and and and, and no, I mean SJW converged. Well, it <laughs> it it might be, but they they haven't been able to censor the products that they want to censor there. You know, we've we've uh, we've made the the people in charge there more afraid of guys like me than of people like Tracy Hurley. You know, uh, because they tried they tried to censor. You know, Benjamin Satanis is one of my co-hosts on the Inappropriate Characters uh, YouTube show. Um, they tried to censor his products. They tried to censor uh, Grim Jim's products. Um, and when that happened, uh, a bunch of us jumped in and created 
um, such a mess for them that that uh, they had to back away. They wanted to set up a system where if anybody declared, pressed a little button declaring an RPG product offensive, it would immediately be pulled and banned, right? Um, with then possibly being reinstated. And this has been uh, has been fought back against, but there's still a constant danger that that they could suddenly declare that they're upping the ante and you'll find most OSR games because it doesn't have to be offensive content. That's just an excuse. There's no offensive content in in Lion and Dragons or Arrows of Indra, and you can bet that they would pull them, right? So they're just going to look at who are the writers that they don't like and get rid of that. And if you get rid of that, we've got nothing in terms of distribution at this time. And then the other thing I was going to comment about what Daddy Warpig said is that uh, the the they know, they understand that the hobby itself is not directly uh, affected by the RPG industry of Wizards of the Coast. And so that's why they've been teaming up. My latest video on my channel was called uh, something like the dark pact uh, in, in RPGs of the corporate SJWs, right? The, the, the corporate SJW pact to destroy RPGs. That, that's what it was. Um, where corporations have this, um, the, this drive right now to move geek products into being lifestyle brands, right? It's not just, you know, you're not a, it, you're not just reading Marvel comics, you're living Marvel comics as a lifestyle. And you're not just playing D&D, you're living D&D as a lifestyle, right? Because that lets them diversify their products. They can sell a bunch of stuff to people who aren't actually readers of comics or players of D&D. And SJWs are using that. They're creating the idea of this bigger D&D community where a large percentage of the people in their community don't actually play any role-playing games at all as a way to marginalize the ones who are the gamers, right? Because if suddenly what we have is a community and not a hobby, they're intentionally destroying hobby in favor of community. Uh, that means that you don't have a group that's primarily defined by playing the freaking game, right? And notice how I censored myself there. <laughs> yeah, and and it notice if you're, they're gonna get a lot of buy-in from the businesses because, and, and I wanted to go over this before we talk about uh, OSR and Appendix N and stuff, but there are a lot of eyeballs on D&D right now that don't play D&D. And I'm talking about the streamers, the live uh, games, the Let's Players. I, I think the, 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 really, the big ones that, that got this ball rolling really were uh, Penny Arcade's Acquisitions Incorporated out here in Seattle, and then there's Critical Role. The, there's a I think it's a group of voice actors in California. They just sit around and yeah. play. They sit around and, and play some sort of D and D, um, and that's really interesting because, as a gamer, to me, uh, they're incredibly dull. They're just—it's like watching paint dry. I can't—I can't stand watching other people play any role-playing game. But they've got big audiences, relative to the size well, of the hobby. Look, th this is something I've talked about a lot on my channel. And um, when you look at D&D live streams, there's tons of D&D live streams that have very, very low viewing counts and very, very few subscribers. And those are the ones that are basically an actual gaming group, you know, just filming them playing their game. No one wants to see that. No one does, right? Absolutely dull, yeah. Critical Role and all these other uh, successful D&D live streams are not like that at all. They're highly produced. They all have professional actors or voice actors 
who are using improv techniques. They, many cases, have semi-pre-scripted games. They have, you know, very fancy production values. They usually have a set and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and they're they're not really D&D at all. They're a D&D themed show. They're a D&D themed reality TV soap opera. Yeah. And that's what people are watching. And we saw that um, this past week when on Critical Role, due to what Matt Mercer, the DM of Critical Role, or the really the executive producer of Critical Role, because he's not really the DM, um, what he had himself admitted was caused by a bunch of complete errors and accidents and bad dice rolls, saw a player character die in the show, um, half of their, their audience were completely outraged because... Uh, they don't actually want to watch a game. They want to watch a a story, a soap opera. And uh, for them, having a character needlessly die was to, shocking to their sensibility of what they actually wanted to see from Critical Role. They don't want to see people playing a game. They don't want to see someone, you know, just die because of bad dice rolls. And, and that's a problem with a lot of modern gamers because I think the game that the game that we were taught. Uh, a long time ago, it changed. And the game that people are being taught these days are being either they think of it as a TV show or they're taught a game such as 5th edition that every character is special and has a story arc and, and shouldn't necessarily die just because of some sort of malicious roll of the dice. So I think you've got a lot, you, you, there are a lot of people watching the show who simply don't understand that it's a game or how the game works. And then there's the other half who that's how they play D&D. They, why should a character die if it doesn't serve the narrative? Right. And, and according to these, to the, the SJWs, um, these people who have never played D&D and have no interest in playing D&D are people that we now have to consider as part of the D&D community. And we have to listen to what they, they want, right. And give them what, what they're asking for and let them influence the lobby and let the SJWs represent them and protect them from evil gamers like us. Yeah, I think that's probably, I mean, that, that effect notwithstanding, I think that's my favorite aspect of the OSR because it's a lot of people just coming around and saying, Hey guys, it's after all, it's just a game. Um, I just to illustrate to illustrate what I was talking about about the type of game that they learn is I ran into a old lady at a board game uh, group, and she said, "Oh, I finally learned how to play Dungeons and Dragons," and I said, "Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, uh, that's great that you that you're finally getting to play it. Tell me about it." Uh, I fell into a pit trap my first <laughs> dungeon, and I died. It was awesome. I know. I wish. it. Was, she started going, oh, it's great. My druid's name is blah, 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 blah. She's, she does this and that and everything. And I'm just, I had to use all my willpower not to put my hand in, or my face in my hands because it was just the worst um, Anti-D&D. We all learn that when we all learn that when you're kids. Nobody cares about your character. Nobody don't talk about your character. Nobody cares uh, because it's about the game experience. It's not about your cast of characters and what cool things they do. Um, but that's the type of game. That's the type of game that people have enjoyed playing ever since AD&D.
and it grew into dominating the game where it, just about every D&D game played uh, apparently is a superhero game with a with a fantasy veneer everybody wants to be lord of the rings that sort of thing yeah or, or harry potter or something like that yeah well and 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 now that we we've talked uh, a lot about stuff that we mostly agree on i think it's a good time to bring up something we may not agree on which is the influence of culture uh, and literature on Dungeons and Dragons, because um, Jeffro's been talking about Appendix N for a long time, and and I see a I see a thread there from the the types of fiction that informed the original style of D and D, and the changes D and D underwent in the eighties and nineties, and and what it became today, and the fact that all of our cultural influences changed along with that. Um, and right. Before we delve into this, uh, if we could just—if I could just—if we could just be two guys that really like RPGs, discussing uh, old games and old books for a second—is that—is that something we can do? That sounds wonderful. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. All right. Um, I think the most notable thing about Gary Gygax that a lot of people don't know. Um, is that, and I don't want to say this in an insulting fashion, this is not meant as an insult, it is in point of fact meant as a compliment. Gary Gygax was the ultimate ripoff artist. Um, that is to say, and again, people are going to get angry at me, but that is to say that every single thing that went into Dungeons and Dragons, or the majority of things that went into Dungeons and Dragons, he took from all kinds of different places. Basically, the vast majority of Dungeons and Dragons, now he put it together in his own way, but the vast majority of Dungeons and Dragons was inspired by or taken from or, or uh, lifted from other sources. Uh, for example, the land shark, the bulette, began as a toy he got from China. He didn't make up anything about it. He just took this toy, gave it stats, used it in the game. That's what showed up in the monster manual. And if you extend that to um, you know, movies, comic books, uh, novels, pulp stories, more toys from from other places around the world. That's where Dungeons and Dragons came from. Dungeons and Dragons is a gigantic stew of thousands of different influences all mixed together as one. And it is only because we either don't know where it came from or uh, it's fallen off the map that they that Dungeons and Dragons seems to be completely sui generis. It seems to be completely de novo. Something that just came out of the blue and Gary Gagas created all of himself. And I think it's interesting for me to know that, for example, the cleric was heavily inf uh, influenced by Hammer horror films from the 1950s. I'm not saying if you watch Hammer horror films, you will absolutely learn what a cleric should be. I'm just saying that he took influence from it. And I've heard the Hammer horror films are really, really good. Uh, horror films anyway but that's what Dungeons and Dragons is it's a huge stew of all these influences that Gary Gygax took together and uh, helped create this aborning hobby uh, along with other people he didn't do it all by himself yeah and and what's interesting to me is that uh, if you look at the 70s uh, just as a period 
Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of people who didn't understand Dungeons and Dragons uh, and that were frustrated by it. And so they went and, and just immediately created their own RPG. Uh, one of those people was a guy named Ken St. Andre, the creator of Tunnels and Trolls. And what I find mm -hmm. interesting is that he basically, I mean, he brought, he stole uh, six attributes, 3D6, six times in order, uh, because that's so obviously the correct way uh, to roll up a character. He kept that, uh, but his his mechanics for the uh, for the combat system and, and the spells are just totally different. Where whereas you know D and D is is uh, a, a Vancean magic system, uh, you know the Tunnels and Trolls is a point based system, for instance. But just looking at the overall methodology for how he made the game, of all the things that he could borrow, uh, looking at D and D and all the things that he could change. One thing that he kept exactly the same uh, was the literary influences. So you're going to see uh, Jack Vance, Andre Norton, and uh, Robert E. Howard, Tolkien, and so on and so forth, and also Fritz Leiber uh, in his works uh, on down to uh, Clark Ashton Smith and Lovecraft and, and, and so on. Um, so it's, it's, it's something about the times when it came to fantasy, uh, when, when these guys sat down and wanted to make a game, their definition of fantasy, uh, who was authoritative in determining what that even was, was basically the same set of authors. Right, but I mean, wasn't that pretty much, barring a couple of kind of weird choices that are on the list of uh, stuff Gary Gygax liked, isn't that pretty much just uh, the body of work that was kind of the defining text of the genre in the late 60s and early 70s, that, especially in that part of the United States? That is exactly my, my thesis. Uh, my, my thesis is that Appendix N is not just a set of literary inspirations for D&D. It is, in fact, the fantasy and science fiction canon. Yeah, the canon, the canon as it was in certain in kind of i guess you could call geek culture i don't know if they were they weren't really geeks back then but uh, pretty much i mean in uh, hobbyist fantasy culture in the late 70s in the midwest of the united states anyway uh well no uh ken st andre lived out west uh so all right not just wisconsin in, in, all right let's let's say in the united states in north america right because um, well, i'm sure there are some authors there are some authors that were significant on that list in north america and the in the late 60s and early 70s that maybe weren't that in you know okay. England. Well, let's let's go with that for a second. Okay, is it only America that had this understanding of uh, the continental U.S. that had this this particular understanding of fantasy and science fiction? I'm going to say, uh, well, let's look at Italy. Italy did mm -hmm. not have a fantasy and science fiction tradition per se. They were really at this time period. They were really, 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 really big into westerns. And they didn't actually have a fantasy and science fiction scene. Uh, but in the, uh, in the 70s, there was a point where they uh, saw this thing catching on. There was, uh, uh, there, there was a point where they were like, hey, we, we want to get in on this. And if you, you can go back and you can look at the authors that they imported and translated uh, into uh, their, their, their own lines of fantasy and science fiction books. And lo and behold, um, the guys that... Uh, Gary Gygax and Ken St. Andre took for granted as being synonymous with fantasy. They're the ones that got translated. So um, 
you know, it, it was not just some local thing. No, no. But I mean, like, uh, sure. A lot of these were the kind of the universal SF authors that were popular at the time. Uh, I'm sure that there were some, um, you know, the more you nitpick at that list, the more you're going to find a few things that that don't fit that mold. Right. And that and that if in other areas, for example, in the UK, I would imagine that, um, you know, you might have uh, some of those authors weren't really that well known. And you had a few others, you know, you had maybe Gormenghast would be something to add to that list at the time. Right. Uh, and, and I'll give you an, another example of an author that everyone should know that for some reason, Americans don't know. But a guy like uh, James Ward, who created the Gamma World game system, thought very highly of. A lot of people look at his game Metamorphosis Alpha and they say, oh, look at that. It looks like he just ripped off this Robert E. Heinlein novel. And it, that's actually not what happened. Uh, the, the author that was canonical to him, that was really tremendous in his imagination, was this guy, Brian Aldous. Mm. Crickets. <laughs> He's I always have read Brian Aldous books when I was young. <laughs> Uh, and I, I always thought he ripped off this Canadian sci-fi show called The Star Lost. Uh, now, I want to the 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 interesting thing about uh, about Gamma World to me uh, is uh, I never understood the demented sense of humor that was part and parcel to the game. Uh, I didn't understand how are you supposed to do this. My idea of of science fiction in general was that it, it had to be this sort of staid over-explained, very pedantic, kind of consistent with reality type thing. So I didn't, I didn't understand how to just relax and enjoy a Gamma World game in the way that obviously James Ward could and did. Um, but if you read, if you read Brian Aldiss, you, you, you find where that demented sense of humor actually came from. And it allows you, I think, to get into the spirit of the game in a way that someone that only read Robert E. Heinlein just is going to struggle to imagine in some cases. Well, hang on, hang on. A couple of things here. First of all, um, that was a real question to you. I mean, are, you are familiar with the Star Lost or not? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I am actually not. Never heard of it. All right. Well, you should look it up because it's a Canadian TV show that came out in the the very early 70s, I think. And it is basically Metamorphosis Alpha, right? It's about a giant starship that uh, got lost in space. And then hundreds of years later, it's most of its levels have re re reduced to primitivism. And then there's this group of young heroes that start going through the spaceship, trying to find their way to the command center. Okay, it's literally Metamorphosis Alpha. Um, second, uh, Gamma World's quirky sense of humor is something that evolved over time. Like Metamorphosis Alpha doesn't have the same sense of humor as late edition Gamma World. And for that matter, first edition Gamma World, I don't know if you've read it or not, but it, it doesn't have that sense of humor either. First edition Gamma World sense of humor in as much as it exists is this very, very kind of British style black humor. It's not, um, it's in no way the, you know, the kind of, oh, look at these goofy mutants sort of thing. Uh, well, I, I'll just give one example of, of the humor that I, uh, I I utilized in my own first edition Gamma World game sessions. Uh, Hot House by Brian Aldiss probably had a different name over in uh, Europe. This is actually, was this a Hugo Award? Yes, this is a Hugo winner, by the way. Um, it has demented political factions in the deep 
past who ultimately came to blows and destroyed the world. Uh, it is it is precisely the premise of of um, of of the gamma world background setting, and and it, and the weirdness of it, the, the humor of it, that dry British humor, which is completely absent from Robert E. Heinlein. Um, it's all over this stuff, uh, and, the, and the way the artifacts are dig up, and the way you find out little hints and pieces of the past, what all was going on. But small point. And uh, I'm happy to move on. All right. So, you know, I'm 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 gonna say, first of all, really on the bigger sense, apart from my nitpicking about the star loss, uh, there's nothing that's been said so far that I disagree with. The place where I disagree has nothing to do with literature. And I get that that for a lot of you, this is important because it's your attempt to bring back um parts of the literary canon that you think have been intentionally uh wiped away, and that might very well be true by the you know sjw lit crowd that have taken over the hugos and things like that and you know more power to you and that's great um my problem is in in terms of dnd uh when you've got this group of people who are creating this kind of mythical nostalgic past of what the old school was like people who mostly weren't in the old school who weren't there in the in the period uh you know before second edition um and they're saying all old school gaming should be like this. And then they they use Appendix N as this kind of weapon to, uh, to, to somehow say, well, you know, this is the proof of this is how the game has to go. And those of us who were actually in old school and, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. I was I was there uh, in the first half of the 80s, but uh, that's uh, that's a little bit later than than some might might decide is authoritative but uh, i've got people on my blog um like uh, uh you know people who are who are uh right there in the old school period um including you know rob Cotton and people, like that. people who played with gary gygax right who are who are saying that it was it was never uh it was never that way right it was never the way that it's being presented it was it was always um, one of the elements of what made old school great is that people were constantly innovating right from the beginning. Just uh, as soon as you had a Gary Gygax, you had a Ken St. Andre, right? And you had other people making different stuff. And there's this part of the movement in old school that fortunately now have become mostly irrelevant, except in the circle left kind of around you, Jeffro, that... Uh, are are the opposite of that. They don't want an innovative OSR. They want an anti-innovative OSR. They want an OSR that's just focused on recreating this mythical, glorious past um, that is like a completely nostalgic, warped perspective of what the actual, what actually made the past great. The thing that made the past great was the innovation. It wasn't sticking in this kind of Talmudic way to this set of only one way to play. Right. And that's what people have been using Appendix N for. And when I hear people telling me that Appendix N is more important than any other part of the appendices of the the D the D, &D uh Dungeon Master, the AD and D Dungeon Master's Guide, um, that's just ridiculous because I don't know anybody. I played with a ton of people in the old school period. And I know a lot of guys, you know, the one thing we used Appendix N for was occasionally to look at the list and say, well, I've read this and I haven't read that. And what have you read? Right. Uh, but none of us were like, oh, this is the thing. We must know this if we're going to play D&D. Right. Nobody did that. These, these horrible, monstrous people that you're talking about are not here right now. And they're not representing their views right now. 
They're not here. They're, they're gone. You, you said they were gone. They are mostly gone, yeah. But but on the threads on Google Plus, where we've been talking about this, whether it's your threads or threads that they've put up about, you know, the upcoming, well, the Geek Gab, what we're doing right now, I've had a bunch of people who are telling me, you know, that, you know, they were jumping at me, right? Um, and at the same time, they would refuse to acknowledge the one simple thing that would defeat my argument completely is just say, you know, Appendix N isn't that important to actual D&D, right? And, uh, you know, if you don't, if, if, if you don't believe that, you just have to say it and you've won. You've proven that there's nobody that I'm fighting against a ghost, right? Uh, but somehow none of these people that were mostly followers of yours, Jeffro, were willing to just actually say that. Um, but that, that, con that contradicts some things that we've already discussed on this very show, though. We, we've said that this is the, the fantasy and science fiction canon that everybody designing in the 70s would have taken it for granted that people playing these games would have been fluent in the stories that are referenced here. And that would have assumed that they would even had some kind of authority over defining what fantasy even was. Uh, di didn't we just discuss that and agree that that was well, Let's look at this from the point of view, not of the literary canon, but of RPGs as a game, all right? Um, are you saying that Appendix N is something more important to know in order to play D&D than the other appendices in the DMG? Um, well, that, that's an interesting, that's a really interesting question. And I, I, I actually think it would take an entire book to really address that in depth. But it's just, oh yeah, you got. I'm gonna interrupt for just a second and give just one example of where I think that Appendix N can be helpful in understanding how D&D should be played. Now, again, I don't think it's dictating things, and I don't think that I think there's a lot of critical questions about Dungeons and Dragons as a particular role playing, as a specific role playing game with a specific game experience that aren't going to be answered necessarily uh, or quote unquote proven in Appendix N. For example, why should these have 1d4 hit points instead of 1d6 or whatever? Um, and without getting into that discussion, that's a discussion you can have based on gameplay experiences and uh, not necessarily proven one way or the other. I think a lot of the problem when it comes to role-playing games is people who are seeking to make a, not a legal case even, but a geometric proof where they can say A and B and C, therefore this answer is completely correct whether on the side of for or against whatever rule you're describing, too many people approach discussing role-playing games like they're assembling a geometric proof to prove that their point is right. But does one D4 Thieves, is that going to be better answered by reading something in Penix Center, better answered by saying, here is its observed effects on gameplay, and here's why it leads to a more enjoyable, um, more enjoyable game experience when playing Dungeons & Dragons and otherwise. I think that where Appendix N is very, very useful is not in assembling geometric proofs to prove why 1D4 thieves are superior or to prove why 3D6 in order six times is superior, but in showing that 
the kind of fantasy that became prevalent with, uh, as far as I know, starting with the sort of Shannara and then growing from there, why those kinds of fantasy novels are not what you should base a Dungeons and Dragons campaign around, that in fact, here's a whole bunch of media about fantasy, a whole bunch of stories that show you that there is a different way to do fantasy that the set of available tools of what a fantasy novel should be is so much wider than what you've been considering. It throws open your mind to consider things that you wouldn't have thought to put in it before. If you assume that fantasy is best represented by the Rift War series or best represented by the Shannara series or best represented even by, say, Sanderson novels, you are going to exclude unintentionally, unconsciously, a whole host of things that if you read the Dying Earth series, you would be open to something brand new and you would not be trying to push your D&D game to fit into the mold of, uh, you know, the sort of Shinar or else ones of Shinar. So all, all I'm trying to say is that People who grew up with one kind of fantasy are very, very limited. And this is an analogy I used back in the beginning. I'm, I'm trying to finish. I'll be done very, very quickly so everybody can get in again. Reading only modern fantasy is like looking at pictures drawn entirely in grayscale. You can do beautiful grayscale drawings. You can do gorgeous grayscale drawings with black and white and, and shades of gray. But there is out there a whole host of colors that if you also did that, you can do in addition to beautiful grayscale drawings, you can do a, a, a picture maybe in red scale with red and black, a picture in blue scale, or even a picture with full color, full spectrum color. People who limited their experience of fantasy to Tolkienist fantasy of the late 70s, 80s, and so forth, um, that is the framework they're working in, and they are always either following that or, or rebelling against it, and it limits them very, very severely, and they take those limitations into when they run D&D, and they try to make D&D like those novels or unlike those novels, and they don't have a chance to consider a broad, wide world outside of that, and that's where I think the appendix in is helpful in D&D, not in assembling a geometric proof to prove one way or the other about how the game should be played or what the mechanics should be, but in throwing open your imagination to uh, a whole host of possibilities you may not have previously considered uh, because your exposure to fantasy is has been so limited. And that's why I think it can be helpful. But although, again, I'm not saying it proves anything and I'm not saying it forces you to do anything. People who try to force everyone else into doing what they think is right are, are doing Dungeons and Dragons wrong. You can influence people, you can talk to people, but there is nothing that, if something works at a particular table, it works at a particular table. That's just my opinion. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna split my answer to that in two parts, if I may. And uh, in the first place, what I have to point out is that is that uh, D and D or any RPG shouldn't um, be like a novel at all, right? right. Um, in terms of actual play, I'm getting I'm going to get to the world building part in a second. But in terms of actual play, you shouldn't be trying to make your game feel like you're going through Lord of the Rings or like it, you're going through Elric or like you're going through anything else, right? Uh, you, you should make it a living world. And uh, the other parts of the AD&D DMG, one of the things that makes it so um, magnificent as a book, 
is that it, it helps you craft it into a living world. And, and you can kind of see that through the, 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 the various different parts of it, right? Um, RPGs are not about telling a story. So we're, we're, we need to, uh, one of the problems I see, in fact, and that, that, that happened over time with this is that uh, the literary influence on these games, in, like from a very early stage, as soon as it got out of just being dungeons, basically, um, created this notion in people's minds that you have to uh, turn games into a story rather than a virtual world, and uh, that screwed everything up, right? Uh, the, the, the people that I could imagine, I didn't meet any of them in the old school period who were considering Appendix N to be, you know, the holy script or something, are probably the people that then got on board with the whole storytelling slash story games movement. And it's not surprising that one of the great champions of this before Jethro was James Malazuski, a guy that came out of storyteller games, uh, the White Wolf genre, and and spent most of the 90s despising D&D. Now, as to the other part, when you're talking about world building, uh, in that sense, when I look at the Appendix N, if we're really going to talk about world building, then Appendix N to me, it's, it's, it's okay, but its crime is that it falls short. Because if you're, if you're saying, well, there's a much vaster literary genre than what we see today, which is just all basically Tolkien and Tolkien derivatives and sort of anti-Tolkien responses like Game of Thrones or stuff like that, that's absolutely true, uh, Warpig. There's no question about that. Um, but the 1970s canon that you see in, in Appendix N is also pretty far from a definitive look at what you can do. And if you instead look at who inspired the people that wrote the books in that canon, that's where you get to some really hardcore stuff. Because then what you get to is something beyond literature. You get to archetype and myth. You get to legend. And what people should be looking at are things like the Mahabharata, which inspired my Arrows of Indra, the, you know, the Arthurian legends, uh, the works of Shakespeare, uh, ancient mythology in general, ancient religion, all of those sorts of things that um, are where you get into like the seriously crazy stuff that, that really opens things up, right? And that's not stuff that's for the most part in Appendix N. Appendix N is stuff that got inspired by that stuff. So the idea that we should just, for some reason, arbitrarily pick the Appendix N list for world building and stop there and not pick something later on that is perhaps less diverse or, uh, I mean, diverse in the literary sense, not in the sense of, you know, books written by black people or something like that, uh, or uh, not look further back to classical literature, to mythology, to, uh, you know, uh, the great works of, of the past in multiple cultures, right? Um, it seems to me to be incredibly arbitrary. It's just, okay, like, yeah, I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if what you're doing is an analysis of what were the literary influences on D&D, sure, Appendix N is the answer to that. But if you're talking about world building in general for RPGs and for Dungeons and Dragons worlds, then uh, Appendix N kind of seems small. Okay, can I, can I answer that? Can I? Please can do. I, you got the floor, go. Okay, um, all right. Uh, just, just offhand, I'll tell you something weird about Mold Bay Basic uh, that, that is weird to contemporary people, that is not weird to people that read a lot of pulp stories. Uh, when I look at the sample character in Mold Bay Basic, there is no space to write Borg the Fighter's background. It's not there. It's not a game where background matters at all. And uh, similarly, you're talking about world building. World building in the 80s. Uh, 
is an entirely different thing than world building in the pulp era. World building in the pulp era was very minimalistic. Uh, you could you could put almost anything anywhere uh, next to anything else with a whole without a lot of rationalization. You know, it was very it was more about uh, imagination and action and so forth. World building in the eighties, I, I I think Traveler is probably the best example of this. Like everything has to have the science right. Every world has to have its own culture and backstory. Not just the characters have to have a backstory, but the worlds all have to have backstories and elaborate fake histories. Um, that, uh, just as one example, is not how Jack Vance's writing works. It's how Tolkien's writing works. Tolkien had ages and ages and ages of epic poetry and fake history and even fake languages uh, that defined his worlds. And Jack Vance and Robert E. Howard were not nearly like that. Uh, for instance, in Robert E. Howard's worlds, you, uh, uh, the Conan stories, you could have many, many different cultures taken from many, many different time periods, and they would all exist side by side each other. And that was okay. That kind of world building was okay in the pulp era. It was okay in 70s D&D. It was not okay by the time you get to something like Forgotten Realms. And then you've got a whole generation of people that struggle to imagine anything different from that. And what happens when they play? What happens? Well, we know what happens when they write supplements. They're like, uh, they're like wannabe authors who have diarrhea of the mouth and they can't stop making up stuff that has absolutely no application to gaming at all. So what happens? What happens if, if you've never heard of sword and sorcery before? You've never read a Robert E. Howard Conan story. You've never read a Fritz Lieber Pofford and the Gray Mouser story. And you pick up D&D. There are assumptions that you're going to put on it if all you know is Tolkien and Sword of Shannara and uh, the rest of those from the 80s, uh, especially Forgotten Realms. What kind of assumptions are you going to just magically put on this uh, without even really being conscious of it? You're going to put that every one of these characters in the party is important, is one thing. And if, they, and if anybody's going to die, it's going to be like a dramatic death where everything you know, really has some meaning. You're going to impose on the game uh, something that is foreign to the fantasy that, it, that the, the game was originally derived from. And so, which now I'm, I'm reiterating some of, of Warpig's point there. But um, uh, just one last thing. Um, pulp stories. Well, you're only going to, hang on, you're only going to do that though if you're trying to run your game as if it was literature. No, and that's part of the problem. That is part of the problem. That's why you don't want to be treating the game as literature. Let me finish. All right, go ahead. All right. There's nothing epic about pulp stories. There's nothing, you know, um, they're short. You know, even like Edgar Rice Burroughs stories, one thing happens and another thing happens and another thing happens. Uh, even the characters, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, Gary Gygax, in the introduction to the Dying Earth role-playing game, uh, he talks about the revelation uh, that he had when he encountered Kujal the Clever for the first time. And he realized that this kind of, this sort of amoral character uh, from, uh, from a picaresque, uh, like, like uh, Eyes of the Overworld, was just really something that had, 
that had gaming potential in a way that other types of heroic characters did not have. And I, I see this emerge from people that only know D&D, the game, and play D&D the game. I see in their actual gaming, they, without knowing who these characters are, they will play characters that behave like Kujul the Clever. It's really interesting. There's something in the game mechanics that produce that. Uh, if you follow the mechanics as opposed to impose, imposing some other concept of fantasy on top of it. Um, and so what, what does that mean? What does that mean? If you discover for yourself the first time uh, these old books that Gary Gygax said was important to him in making this game and that a lot of other people took for granted as being normal at the time, uh, you, you'll see that things that are in the game that you're playing that seem kind of weird to you, that you're going with because it's in the game, but you don't really understand why they made the creative decisions that they did, you see that there's a whole world of literature where this was normal. And that, that for a lot of people, is really why, is why when they discover Appendix N, their mind is blown in a good way. Uh, and it expands their ability to, uh, to imagine uh, how this game should be played. Uh, look, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of what you're saying there could be right, but I, I couldn't help but kind of stop and get caught up in the, the fact that you use the term picaresque in reference to uh, Cudgel the Clever. And it may, just made me think how many of the people who have read The Dying Earth um, and and could could mention could recognize that Cudgel is a picaresque character who have never read, uh, you know, uh, Lazaricio de Tormes or the Satyricon. You know, like it's not like those like like Cudgel the Clever invented that character. That is a character that goes back, you know, through European literature all the way to the Romans, right? And uh, that that you say, well, it has to be this. You have to look at Cudgel the Clever to de to de to define it. Seems a bit. Um, it seems a bit off to me. It's really important, I guess, for looking at the history of D and D. It's not really important for looking at uh, how to play D and D. What you have to know is the archetypes, not the specific literary references. Right? You're trying to treat this as a literary exercise. I'm saying, look at the look at the underlying myth. You know, the myth is what's important. The the archetypes of of the of the canon are what's important, not the specific examples of the canon. I'd like to jump in here really quick because uh, I'm standing as a third party and just listening to both your arguments. I like how you guys are coming at it from slightly different angles, and in my mind, my mental model's missing something, and it's that that experience and change in the games and the culture, beginning in the early 80s with AD&D. The game itself became uh, about uh, the super powerful party. It became about narrative. And all of the things that happened in the 90s, like White Wolf and Second Edition, Forgotten Realms and all that stuff, they're all interrelated. At the same time, the literature and the culture changed. That was, you know, Terry Brooks, Shannara was big, uh, Robert Jordan, that sort of thing, those big epic fantasies. So are the types of stories and the, the cult cultural changes happened at the same time. The, the systems are interconnected. So even from a gameplay standpoint, I, I, I appreciate Jeffro's 
efforts because it seems to me that reading those works might give you a better understanding, a better mindset for understanding why the rules are the way they are, why you would play it as just a game. I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from, Pundit, because you don't need to understand those works specifically to understand the, the game theory or the game mechanics or anything. They definitely, uh, they would definitely help you understand the references the, for where a rule may have come from. Uh, but it's not necessary to understand that it's just a game and you should enjoy it as a game. But I think the the cultural changes and the literary changes that happened between the pulp era and modern fantasy uh, are somehow related to the game changes and, and the, the businesses and the industries where it turned into selling story time, selling splat books, that sorts of thing. Um, when I was when I was a teenager, I owned the entire Planescape set for second edition, uh, mostly because of the art and the writing. Uh, I really liked Tony Diddalizzi's stuff, but uh, they had a lot of customers like me who didn't play as much as they bought. And so all of those changes are interrelated. And the way I the way I understand it so far is that Appendix N is a valuable frame of reference. If we're going to if we're going to have the types of role playing games that people like to play in the future that aren't just uh, boring story time, I we may need a similar frame of reference for for the modern uh, for the modern age. I'm not sure that that those references exist anymore. They may this may be a relic of an old literary tradition. I, I think we can all agree that uh, modern literature today is like, well, not modern literature, but the modern reader today, the modern consumer of pop culture today is uh, unbelievably bankrupt in terms of their, you know, what they what they have access to. Right. There's just they're just starved. Right. And you see this with how, uh, you know, most millennials, whenever they speak in in metaphor, like the only thing that they can reference is Harry Potter, right? Like they've lost the, the the literary language, the cultural language and the religious language of the West, right? So they can't use biblical allegory or metaphor. They can't, you know, use something out of Shakespeare because they don't know Shakespeare. They they can't use, you know, anything out of old classical literature. The only thing they know is Harry Potter. So suddenly everybody's like Dumbledore, right? Everything is like you know, whatever, everything, everything is like uh, Snape or whatever the fuck these characters are, right? <laughs> like they're, they're all, the only thing they can compare anything to is Harry Potter. Cause that's the only language they have left. Right. Yeah. I, it's, it turned into a meme on the internet, you know, cause it's, it's the only, it's the only book series that's popular with those strong archetypal characters. And, and so the, the and that proves, read another book. That proves how starved they are for archetype. I mean, I guess Jethro would also say how starved they are for literature, right? But yeah. well, I, I think, more importantly than archetype. I think that, um, and I, I don't want to say this, because this, this, this is an argument I don't like getting into on anybody's uh, behalf, but... I know someone who is generally in favor of older science fiction and fantasy, but what he actually loves, the books he personally loves, are all of these uh, obscure literary works of Japanese authors and old books and things like that. 
And I have to say, you know what? I appreciate that you love those books, and that's great. That's wonderful for you. Congratulations. You can enjoy them and love them. But if I, I don't think most people are going to pick up a translation of a traditional Japanese text from 1600 and begin reading it, I can agree that surely for the sake of uh, becoming literate, that is becoming familiar with landmark works in Western culture and maybe even landmark works in other culture, that there are a whole host of works you should read. But I think that when you're talking about pop culture, you are more likely going to get people to actually sit down and read um, sit down and read a pulp story of Conan, like the original Robert E. Howard Conan, um, you're more likely to get them to read Robert E. Howard's Conan than you are to get them to um, learn and read uh, Hamlet. Uh, and I that is not to put down Hamlet. I go see Shakespearean plays in the theater. I really love Shakespearean plays. Even so, um, and there are a lot of things you can say, okay, well, those are not plays. Those are scripts, and that's really difficult to read. There's some other works that people should read. I can agree on all the shoulds, and I can agree that there are good works there that are great works that are educated people, that literate people um, should be reading. But I think when you're talking in the context of Dungeons and Dragons, you're going to be more likely to get someone to read Jack of Shadows. You're going to be more likely to get someone to read Conan. You're going to be more likely to get someone to read... Um, the original Faithful and the Great Mouser stories, not the ones that get shoved into the book, first book, then you are to read classics of literature because they're shorter, they've got more approachable writing, uh, and they are highly adventure-oriented. So it is not my intent to disparage older works, uh, and it's not my intent to disparage people who read them. I just think when you're talking about wanting to expand people's minds, you're going to be more likely to get them to read Paul. That's just, you know... Yeah, and, and when you and drawing this back to the uh, earlier discussion about people coming into fields and then uh, redefining terms, changing it, uh, you know, I, I like going back and seeing the original works uh, that were important to our hobby at different stages, uh, particularly the older ones, uh, so I can make up my own mind of what should be in my canon. Uh, you know, I, I want some a broader menu than the ones that the uh, industry mob, you know, uh, people and the uh, and certainly the journalists, the people who repeat these same narratives over and over that really don't correspond to what actually people think and what they actually do. You know, I, I want to see for myself. I I want to see these authors that uh, stood up against communism in the '30s, uh, who didn't think anything of it, who was obviously wrong to them. I, I want to see people that stood up to feminism in the '60s. In their writing, uh, and these are authors that will not be named by anyone in any kind of uh, mainstream book blog or or uh, newspaper uh, books uh, section, whatever. You're just not going to see it. They're they're going to pick and choose a different set of authors to represent what they think people ought to be reading and thinking about. And it's really, you know, the truth is our heritage, our heritage as gamers is so much deeper and so much richer 
than what these people who have been responsible for conveying the science fiction and fantasy history to us, what they have, uh, what, what they have said and, and how they have characterized it. And in fact, not just, not just different authors, crappier authors. Uh, what? The, the authors not that just, they have promoted are worse. Oh, not just oh. different authors, <laughs> crappier authors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not going to mention any names now, but uh, really, if, if you've never read uh, Robert E. Uh, um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan, the original, if you've never read Robert E. Howard's Tarzan, if you've never read Jack Vance's uh, uh, Dying Earth series, and if, you, if you've never read uh, Fritz Leiber, uh, you really owe it to yourself to check these guys out. Um, because... Uh, you're, and, and I've seen this uh, with countless people, people who aren't even associated with, with gaming. Either way, they say, you know, that, why didn't anybody tell me uh, to read these guys? You know, these were authors that were all on, uh, they were associated with TSR in the early days in some instances. If you go back and look at Dragon Magazine, you know, Fritz Library is right there. Uh, he's at Gen Con, you know. And when you look at... Um, um, you know, who the authors are that are cited in the early modules, like uh, Castle Amber. Uh, you, you've got uh, Rogers Lasney right there, uh, along with Clark Ashton Smith. Um, it's just really, you know, the, the things that normal people love and care about are just so different than the things that we're supposed to like. You know, if, if we divorce this whole discussion from D&D completely, if D&D and D&D as a game and D&D as a world-creating concept is removed from the equation, then we have no argument here, right? I, I, uh, I absolutely agree that, you know, while I don't think it's the end all of, of, of literature, um, that it would be a lot better for a modern 20-year-old if they were reading Robert E. Howard and, uh, and uh, Fritz Lieber than if they were only reading, you know, Harry Potter, which is apparently all they read. Um, that would be that would be wonderful. Right? Uh, now, I'll point out that even in Gygax's time, and certainly in the time of Robert E. Howard, um, you you had maybe not everybody was reading Shakespeare, right? But everybody knew Shakespeare as a reference, right? Everybody understood these references. Everybody understood the references of the of the Bible, right? You could mention something that was a quote from one of those two sources in the English-speaking world, and they would immediately understand that reference, right? And in in schools, you had people not in necessarily in the original Greek anymore, depending on what school you went to, but you know, people studied um, the Odyssey and the Iliad, right? And uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And nobody's saying that, yeah, okay, you must go back to this. It's not about high literature or something like that, right? But it's about understanding the fundamental archetypes, right? Maybe the common person back then didn't necessarily read the Iliad in Greek or something like that, uh, but uh, they, they, they knew the Reader's Digest version of it, right? Like they understood the context of these, of where these archetypes and myths of the Western canon at least came from, right? Um, which is very important. Now, if if you're if you're not like I said, if you're not talking about D and D, we have no disagreement, right? Now, when it comes to D and D, my point is that that if as soon as you start talking literature, you're trying to think of D and D 
as an exercise in recreating literature, and that's not what it is. Uh, D&D is an exercise in creating a living world. And to create a living world, what you need is for that living world, just like our living world, to be made of symbols, to be made of archetypes. The, the list on the Appendix N books, you know, of the Appendix N books, um, are a list that if all of that you read was those Appendix N books, you'd have a whole bunch of archetypes in there that you can then use to create a living fantasy world. And that's great. But the important thing about that is the archetypes. It's not the specific references of the literature. I think that's... In, uh... Strictly in terms of the mechanics of, of, of how to, to role play, right? Not in terms of the value of the literature itself. Well, the, uh, that's that's a really good point. And, and I'm really happy to hear that you guys find some common ground. I think that's a, a great place to leave it for today because it's been an awesome show. Um, RPG Pundit, do you want to have any last words before we head out? Well, um, really just uh, I, I hope everybody watching checks out my... Uh, my YouTube channel, you can look it up, RPG Pundit, right? And the Inappropriate Characters YouTube channel, which if you're not familiar with, is an RPG talk show similar to this one, uh, which features myself, Venger Satanis, and Grim Jim DeBurro, the three most censored RPG designers in the hobby. Um, and uh, yeah, so you should check out both of those channels and please subscribe. And I guess that's it pretty much. Cool. Thanks a lot for coming on. Jeffro, do you have any last words? Oh, uh, I'm just going to say that I, I am really looking forward to next week's show if it's going to have Sky Hernstrom. Is that is that what I is that what I hear? Is, is that correct? That yes. is true. Sky Hernstrom, Back from the Dead. Uh, uh, Sky, Sky is releasing two new stories in uh, on Amazon during the first part of the month, and we're going to have him on the show to talk about those and uh, whatever else comes up. So, uh, by the way, folks, if you're on Twitter, um, Sky Hernstrom, just join the Twitter conversation. Um, and so, uh, by all means, check out his account name is Thune's Vision. So just do a, a search for Thune's Vision and uh, follow Sky um, and join the conversation with him as well. All right. Um, uh, thanks a lot. And just so that you guys know, all those links that you mentioned, they're going to be in the show notes. If there's anything else you want our audience to check out, just send me the link and we'll make sure it gets in there after the show. Daddy Warpig, do you have any other last words? No, I, I had a short anecdote uh, about gaming, but it's one of those things that work better at the top of the show. I just want to say this. For the first time in a long, long time, I went and hung out with a friend yesterday. We started playing games at 6 p.m. We didn't finish until 2 in the morning. Um, and so I came home and got to sleep very, very late. I woke up like 20 minutes before the show started. Um, and so I can't do that all the time because, let's face it, I'm old. I'm rapidly aging, middle-aged, um, but it was nice uh, to sit down and just play some solid games uh, uh, for several, several hours, to have fun with my friends, some people that I haven't seen, uh, hung, hung out with in three or four years because of various things that happened in real life, but it was great. I had a great time, so by all means, folks, my encouragement is to, uh, uh, if you're not playing a role-playing game, pick it up, go out and start. Um, and uh, there are some also some great board games on uh, out there that we've talked about on the show occasionally. So if you want to bring some more joy into your life, go out there and start and uh, and play some great role playing games. Um, one last thing, as far as role playing games being stories, I wrote a great article on, on this at the Castalia House blog a couple of weeks ago to define 
what role-playing games are. And um, I really hope to expand on that for the upcoming secret project um, yeah. and make something that would be really, really good for uh, game masters to pick up people who haven't necessarily had someone sit down and say directly, simply, clearly, unambiguously, in a nuts and bolts fashion, this is exactly what role-playing is, and this is all you have to worry about, and you can forget all the other stuff about plot and story and things like that. Villains might have plots, that is, they might have plans, but your games don't have to. You wouldn't survive the, the Uruguayan role-playing scene, man. Uh, we, I, I role-play about 14 hours every weekend. <laughs> And uh, oh, I'm, that, wow. that's about to start for me now in an hour and a half. <laughs> oh, like, oh, you're you're in for it. Well, uh, Daddy Warpig, since you also run the show, you can put that link to your Castelia House thing in the in the show notes. Oh, I can do that. Yeah. It, actually, that reminds me. I'm about to enjoy about 24 hours worth of gaming after this. Um, I want to thank you to our special guests, Jeffro and RPG Pundit. Uh, it's been a great show. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. I would also like to extend a special thanks to everybody hanging out in the chat. If you're listening to this after the fact, go ahead to YouTube. You can watch the chat go by as it goes. Not a, not a lot of questions, but we've had a lot of great and lively discussion about uh, gaming and our current social justice warrior climate in there from the usual suspects or our regular fans. Um, thanks a lot for joining us live. It's been a great pleasure to be your host. I'm John signing off for Geek Gab. This has been Game Night for Saturday, July 28th, 2018. Good night and game on.